All right, everybody, welcome to a fantastic new episode of the uh, Prog Report Top 5. As you can see, we have a very special guest below here, Mr. Stephen Wilson. Stephen, how you doing, man? Very well. Thank you for asking. Very well. Thank well, you. Really happy to have you here. And, uh, you know, I know you're pressed for time with the uh, promotion of the new album, The Future Bites, which we want to talk about. But we, uh, we're really excited because we have a, a top five audiophile albums uh, topic for this. And we really couldn't think of anyone better for this than you with all the mixing you've done and your expertise in the studio and all that. So we're excited about that. Joining me is uh, my good friend from South Africa, Prague Nick, as we call him. Hello, hey, everybody. Uh, I just really qu quickly want to point out uh, some info about the new record, The Future Bites, uh, which comes out January 29th uh, next year, 2021. Um, a lot, all the info can be found on stephenwilsonhq.com. And you just uh, announced some tour dates and released a, a B-Sides EP, which we want to talk about. But um, I just want to start real quick, sort of a general, let, for people that haven't been aware, uh, you know, talk about the concept and, and coming up with the new record and, and sort of, I guess, the challenge of putting this out now with, uh, with COVID and everything. Mm. Okay, so the Future Bites was, was kind of conceived, if you like, in around 2018, middle of 2018. And at the time, um, I guess for the first time in my life, I found I wasn't really looking forward to the future. I didn't feel optimistic. Um, it was in the middle of the Trump administration. We had Brexit going on here. This is, of course, before, before COVID, so things got even worse. But at the time, I w for the first time in my life, I wasn't feeling like the future was a place I was, I was looking forward to arriving in. So I started to write songs. I think predominantly the, two, the songs that I wrote fell into two categories. Firstly, songs about identity um, and the kind of... Um, self as it exists in the 21st century, particularly as seen through the sort of prism of social media. And it occurred to me that the human race has kind of had its, had its evolution altered by technology in a relatively short period of time. And if you think, I mean, there's a line in one of the songs called Self, which for me is one of the lines that kind of sums it up for me, the whole concept of the record. The line says, self sees a billion stars but still can only self-regard so it's that idea that we used to gaze out of the cosmos we used to gaze out of the universe and be curious about this extraordinary planet and this world that, and this universe we're born into and now we spend most of our time looking at a little screen on our phone to see how many likes yeah our latest instagram post has got how many comments our, our Facebook post has got, how many views our YouTube post has got. So I think my feeling was the human race becomes more and more in a sense narcissistic, more and more self-obsessed, more and more seeing themselves reflected back at themselves through this kind of mirror of, of social media and the internet. Do I think this is a good development? Obviously not. So I started to write a lot of songs about the whole concept of how um, self-image has been altered by technology. And it's very interesting to me. I grew up reading a lot of science fiction stories when I was a teenager, stories by Arthur C. Clarke, Thomas Dish, Philip K. Dick. And a lot of those stories are about how technology created by man will one day ultimately be the end, destruction of man. Right. And in a sense, although I feel that's overstating it slightly, I do feel we're living now in a generation where our lives are so ruled by technology. Our psyche is ruled by technology. Even our our evolution has been altered by 
technology and the way we engage with it. I find that fascinating on one hand and horrifying in a, on another hand. Um, and the other main theme on the album is really to do with consumerism, which is kind of an extension of, of the internet in a way. The idea that these days the most powerful people in our lives are no longer politicians. They are the people that write algorithms on yeah. YouTube, on Amazon, uh, on Facebook, that are constantly persuading us to buy things, believe things, hate people, uh, like people, vote for people, buy and listen to music, watch whatever it is. They're con we're constantly being bombarded by a series of algorithms on our, in our daily life that are analyzing our data and essentially using it against us. And right now, what terrifies me is that that technology is in its very, very infancy, and it's only going to get more and more powerful, progressively more insidious as time goes on. So those, those are the two main themes of the record, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And you also, uh, you know, you're you're sort of diving headfirst into it from a promotional aspect, right, with the videos and and the box set, really, it, almost ironically, right, like offering you know extra things and stuff like that talk about the box set and all the stuff that's going into to the promotion a little bit yeah because i mean this is this is where the accusations of hypocrisy are quite valid you know <laughs> directed against me i mean my my world obviously relies on consumerism i mean i'm i'm kind of engaged in a contract here between myself and my listeners to hopefully invest in my music um, both psychologically and, and financially, preferably, you know, both because I can't exist without the, the latter, unfortunately. So I, you know, I love to, like most people, I love to consume and I love the internet for what it gives me. You know, social media is one of the greatest things ever invented for the professional musician in the sense that particularly during this period of, of lockdown, I can't tour, I can't do any TV, I can't do any record store signings, which are think, all things I would normally be hoping to do to promote a record. So I'm left only with this, the right. internet. And video, of course, is, is something that's a big part of that. Now, I don't know about in America, but there are no shows left in, on TV that show videos. So essentially, you make a video to give it away on the internet. So again, you're trying to get people engaged on YouTube and Vimeo and all these other platforms for giving away your video. But the problem is that there's more music in the world than at any other time in history. And there are more people competing for decreasing attention spans. And that's the problem. The attention spans get smaller, but the amount of content, it's a horrible word, I know, but I use it anyway, because that's, that's what the streaming services use. That's the word they use. Content is increasing exponentially. More songs, more albums, more musicians, more band camp pages, more YouTube channels all competing for people's attention. One of the things I do think I have in, in my favor with that is every time I do something, it's quite controversial. It has a kind of controversy to it, right. which does create dialogue. And so kind of people notice when I do things, which I think is a good thing, even though it creates a lot of negative as well as positive discussion. I think the fact it creates discussion at all is kind of works for me. It kind of puts my, puts my concept and my music and my record at the forefront of the discussion. And the videos were part of that too. Every video has been very, very well considered and beautifully executed. And there's a lot of ideas to discuss in the videos. Yeah. Nick? Cool. Uh, Stephen, so interestingly, here I am talking to one of the most um, 
uh, highly regarded music producers in the world right now. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a question which is surprising for me to ask. This, uh, the new album was co-produced uh, by David Costin of Bat for Lashes and Everything Everything, a very well-known producer uh, in England. Um, I know you've previously worked with Paul Stacey on To The Bone, but we kind of have you in our minds as a musician, a performer, a composer, but also very primarily um, a, a producer too. So what led you to the decision to be uh, to be using a co-producer in David Costin on this album? Uh, would it be fair to say that this is uh, a, a, a sign of future collaborations on, on, on producer credits in the future? Um, he's known for not focusing on minutiae, but on understanding the artist's big picture mm. and the primary goal of the artist. Um, so I just wondered what was it that drew you to David and, and, and led you to the decision to involve him in the Future Bites? I mean, it's a good question. The answer is actually quite simple, really, and that is that I need to feel like I'm always changing and evolving. And one of the best ways to do that is to change the people around you. So I'm always the same. That, I mean, if there is a problem with me, actually there's two problems I have with me sometimes when I'm left to my own devices. Firstly, of course, what number one problem is you tend to fall back into your comfort zone. And everyone has a kind of musical language that they speak in, a musical vocabulary that they tend to use. Their safety zone in a sense. And I'm, I'm like many people, I'm very prone to falling into that. The same kind of chord progressions, uh, the same kind of production tricks. Although I try not to fall into those, I, I'm sure I do. So that's the first reason, is to try and bring in some fresh ideas um, that will kind of shake my sound up a bit. And I think that's always something that was very, the, the people that I grew up really admiring, the, the David Bowies, you know, those kind of people were very good at always changing the people they collaborated with in order to make them seem like they were changing. And the other thing that I have a tendency to do, which I don't necessarily like, although it's fun sometimes, is I have a tendency to... Um, sound too much like I'm homaging the music I love sometimes. And I'm aware of that. Um, one of the things that's really nice about David, I'm going to tell you a little anecdote here. Most people, most people in the, in the music industry, whether they're musicians, producers, engineers, tend to get very excited if they're in a working environment, if they accidentally or deliberately hit on something that reminds them of something they love. So it might be the Beatles, it might be Kraftwerk, it might be Pink Floyd, whatever it is. It's like, wow, oh my God, it sounds like this, it's amazing. That is not necessarily a good thing because it means you're falling into that, that trap of pastiche and homage to something you already love. What I love about David is he's the opposite. If I'm like, oh my God, it sounds like this, amazing, he'll say, right, so we're not doing that then. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna put that aside and we're gonna find something that works just as well but that is more uniquely you. And I love being pushed in that way. And almost without exception, every time he would kind of force me down that road, we would find something else that I liked even more, but that was even, that was more kind of uniquely part of my musical world, if you like. And I do have that. I mean, I only, you only have to look at my back catalogue and it's very often my, my musical DNA is very clearly, it's very clearly obvious to anyone that listens. Um, you can hear my influences. And I don't always necessarily like that. And one of the things I believe about the Future Bites, and I hope this is true, although time will tell, is that you can listen to it. And of course, you can still pick up certain musical references. It's impossible to make music these days without referencing your, you know, the things that you grew up with. But I like to believe that it's an album that sounds 
uniquely a Stephen Wilson record. It habits a world that is uniquely mine. And, and David, ironically, David was the person that kept me on that path. Right, right. very cool. So I, I have another sort of audiophile question or really observation um, uh, to put to you, which is um, uh, many people may be aware of the high-end Munich uh, event, which, which happens every year. Um, which is an internationally renowned audiophile trade show. I mean, not, not only professionals, but uh, audio experts, manufacturers, consumers, audiophiles come from all over the world and they get together in Munich and they have this trade show, which is, is great news for audiophiles such as Roy and myself and the fans um, because it's all about top-class audio reproduction and it's, it's, it's all about um, raising the level and raising the standard in terms of hardware and, and naturally the production. Now, first of all, deepest congratulations to you because you, you were nominated uh, the high-end Munich 2019 brand ambassador. So first of all, congratulations for that. Um, can you tell us more about your involvement there and what that meant to you and what this signifies to you? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to, to look at it in a more kind of broad context for a minute. It's very interesting to me how over the last 20 years or so, with the advent of things like streaming and, and platforms, and you know, like Napster and now Spotify and Deezer and those kind of things, is that the way people listen to music seems to be polarizing at two extremes. So you do have a lot of people who only listen to music on streaming platforms, MP3s or the compressed audio. But at the same time, there's been a swing back in the other direction people like yourself who are very interested in sonic excellence, audiophiles as we call them, who are moving increasingly towards uh, higher resolution audio and in some cases surround and even now to Atmos. And that's obviously something I feel a lot more affinity with than the other um, because I've always, you know, in fact, we're gonna talk about this when we come to the top five, I know. Um, I've always been someone that's believed very much in the idea of sonic excellence in, in, in music. And a lot of my favorite albums are things that I would consider to be at the very highest level um, of production standards. And it's a shame in a way to spend so much time as a musician, to spend so much time writing, recording, mixing, mastering your music, and then to have people only listen to it out of that. Or you, know, or, you know, even worse, out of laptop speakers. But the reality is that's what 99% of the people on the planet now do. Um, but it's nice that we still at least have this other 1% who still care. And those are the people I'm making the record for. Or the, they're not the people I'm making the record for, but they're the people that I'm striving to make the record sound as good as it can for, as well as myself, of course, with yeah. professional you know, pride in that sense. So I'm, I'm very, very much a supporter of that world. And I'm, I truly believe the more audio that is mixed and mastered to that kind of level, that market can only continue to grow. And it's been great to see the Beatles catalog done in Atmos, for example, in 5.1, because you know when the Beatles are doing it, lots of people are going out and buying systems just so they can hear the White Album or Abbey Road in Atmos. So, I mean, that's, amazing. that's the best way to promote those formats is for the content, that word again, sorry, the content to be out there, which is all what I've always felt when I've been remixing any of the artists I've worked with, I've always felt like this is going to be a great way to introduce the fans of that artist to a format that they probably never thought about listening to before. So if Aqualung is someone's favorite album or Songs from the Big Chair is someone's favorite album, you know, whatever the album is, that person might go to the trouble of going out and investing in a high 
end audio system with 5.1 capability just so they can hear their favorite album. And then they're going to look around and say, okay, now what else is out there that I can listen to in this format? Yeah. And that's the way it works for me. And I think that's what's so important about the Beatles and Pink Floyd and these, you know, the, the very, very top end bands embracing the format. That's when, it's, that's when things start to move in the right direction. So the, the, the interesting thing about Atmos is, is, is that it's, uh, um, it's, a, it's a whole new immersive world of audio, which you might want to tell us a little bit about, Stephen. But, but uh, the Future Bytes is apparently mixed for Atmos and will be released on Atmos as well, which is highly unusual. That'll, that'll make it one of the, one of the first albums ever. Um, but, I, but I guess the difference between 5.1 and Atmos is that, is that the hardware manufacturers are now looking at more affordable ways of delivering Atmos. Um, so who knows, the Future Bytes might be a gateway to, to, as you say, those people going and purchasing the hardware that's necessary for this. Do, do you want to tell us a little bit more about the Dolby Atmos mix for, for, for the Future Bytes? Yes, I'm absolutely happy to do that because I understand a lot of people still don't quite understand what it is. And, I, and by the way, I didn't understand. I got invited along to hear the playback of Abbey Road at Abbey Road last November. And that was my introduction to, to Atmos and I was blown away. And I had to discover myself exactly what it was. So in very, very simple terms, um, 5.1, of course, most people understand what 5.1 is. 5.1 is two speakers at the front, two speakers at the back one speaker in the center, and the point one is the low frequency, the LFE speaker that creates the, the sub frequencies. Atmos as standard is 7.1.4, which means that you have the 5.1 speakers, but you have two additional speakers at the sides. So that's the seven. You still have the point one, the low end, but you now have the point four, which is two speakers which are elevated above you. Now, what that means, so two speakers at the front above you, two speakers at the back above you. Mm. What that means is that now as a mixer, you can spread the music around not only in the horizontal plane, but also in the vertical plane. Oh, wow. So you can send sound above the listener. It's amazing. That's of course, so it's amazing. Really cool, I would yeah. But the other beautiful thing about Amos, which, which you, you've, you've kind of already touched on, Nick, is that it's not dependent on a particular configuration of speakers. And the hardware manufacturers are now creating sound bars and headphone listening, which is able to decode the Atmos mix into not a completely discrete experience, of course not, but I would say 80% of the experience, which is, I don't know how they do it, but it's incredible to hit, to put a pair of stereo headphones in your ears and to hear sound coming from above you, behind you. And I think that might just make the difference between why 5.1 never really caught on and why Atmos just might catch on. So I'm really excited about it, yeah. That's really cool. No, thanks for that explanation, actually, because I, I wasn't even aware of, of exactly how it works. So that's that's pretty cool. Uh, you know what? I want to go ahead and get started on the top five, and I'm sure we'll come back to other things relating this and and uh, and your album and everything. Uh, but again, uh, Future Bites out January 29th. A bunch of singles out there right now, so make sure you check those out. Um, and by the way, 12 Things I Forgot is just one of my favorite songs, like favorite songs right now. This is amazing. Um, Thank you. All right. So what we want to do is uh, we're going to talk about five. We're just going to pick our five audiophile records. We did discuss them beforehand. We have no idea what we're picking. So, Stephen, I want to give you the floor. Um, your number five uh, to start, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So I've picked – mine are not in, in a order of preference, really, but Fair they're enough. just five albums that I think okay. are – 
Um, and there's going to be there's going to be a particularly narcissistic moment in this rundown. <laughs> I'm afraid. Just pre-warning you. Okay. Fair enough. Um, but anyway, uh, with that caveat aside, let's move on. Yeah. So I think I'm going to pick my first one. I pick one from the 70s, two from the 80s, one from the 90s, and one from the 21st century, which is where the narcissistic bit comes in. Mm-hmm. The one I'm going to pick from the 70s, I would be very surprised if you guys haven't already picked, or at least you haven't picked an album by this artist at least. It's an album I never need to hear again as long as I live because I've heard it so many times in my life. I grew up hearing my father play it over and over again. It is fundamental to my musical DNA. The whole idea of an album having a conceptual sweep or something analogous with watching a movie, listening to an album from beginning to end, but also in the sense that each each of the component parts can be taken out of context and the songs work as standalone too. But most importantly, in relation to this conversation, it sounds beautiful. And it was the album. We were talking about how technology sometimes can influence people or records can influence technology and vice versa. This was an album in the 70s that persuaded a lot of people to invest in high-end stereo equipment. Guess the album I'm talking about, guys. (laughs) Definitely Dark Side (laughs) of the Moon is what I'm thinking, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's a stunning record it is yeah yeah i mean full disclosure one thing nick and i did discuss was steven's probably going to pick dark side right so we don't we're not going to go there it was sort of like so uh we we try to not always pick some of the obvious ones or or maybe guess what our what our guest might pick but but that was certainly in my in my running i I had about 10 records on it was one i was definitely gonna gonna go for i mean i remember being 10 years old even years after it was out and and listening to it on headphones and being blown away by it then i I, you just i think anybody now listening to it would have the same effect totally yeah i I think it's an it's an album that never ages because it has a timeless production it has almost like a golden glow to it everything sounds very organic very natural nothing about it sounds contrived or of its time um, it's something about Floyd as a band. I mean, I know they're all as, always associated with, you know, the, the, or a lot of people associated with the progressive rock genre. I think there's one very simple reason why, why Pink Floyd have transcended that and appeal to almost any music lover. And it is this thing, simplicity. There's a simplicity, not only in terms of the music, but in the sentiment. And it never sounds, it almost sounds like they're not even trying. Um, there's nothing ostentatious, pretentious, flowery, overly complicated about what they do. And that applies musically, lyrically, and also in the way they recorded their albums. The space in that record is what makes it so beautiful. The glow, that comes, this kind of halo of warmth that comes off the record. Um, the melodies, the simplicity, the, the pop sensibility. You know, I'm sure we'll talk about that with some of these other records I'm going to pick. There is a very strong pop sensibility on Dark Side of the Moon, which makes it appeal to almost anyone. Take a song like Money. Money is like a funky track. It's fun. A song like Great Gig in the Sky, taken out of context, is gospel. It's gospel music. 
It's not progressive rock, it's gospel. This is just different forms of pop. But there's something about the way that they fuse it together and it has this conceptual flow, conceptual sweep, and this extraordinary, beautiful production and engineering by Alan Parsons that I think just makes it completely stand outside of time and almost outside of this idea of generic classification. I don't think it is a prog rock album. I think it's just a Pink Floyd album. Um, and it's a, they're a band that clearly created their own musical world in, you know, in this, you know, right from the beginning almost. Um, so there's not much more I can say about the album that hasn't already been said yeah, because no, it is I, I agree, part yeah. of me, yeah, yeah part no. of me doesn't didn't want to pick it because it's one of the most over discussed albums in history. You know, it was it a tough. We thought about different. that too. It's like it sort of is the defining album for this topic, but then you also, you know, you feel weird. You picking can't it not. Again. Yeah, exactly. but you can't not right? right. You cannot not pick it. Because yeah. it is so, it's so definitive in, yeah. this, in this kind of discussion. No, that's great. I'm glad you yeah. did, though. Uh, all right, Nick, why don't you jump in with your number five? Okay, so this being the prog report and um, really the prog, prog reports meeting potatoes being what some people call neo-prog. Um, I know Stephen hates labels, but it just makes it easier. Um, I, I'm going to go with, with, with a more recent um, release uh, for my number five. And from 2006, it's the first album by the band Frost called Million Town. Um, I don't know why I love the sound of this album so much. It's got crazy playing, hectic, uh, hectic performances all over it. Um, it's prog to its core, but not at, at various moments during the album. And of course, Jim Godfrey is a very well-known pop producer. He's had, he's had massive pop hits. He's certainly got that pop sensibility. Um, but I think this was Jim's uh, reaction to what he felt was something that Stephen has alluded to uh, uh, at various times, the kind of stagnation of progressive rock that, that um, you know, artists were kind of repeating what happened in the 70s without, without inventing anything new. And Jim went on, re on record, and of course he got together with, with uh, Stephen's good friend John Mitchell um, to create this album. And it, it, what he wanted to do was make progressive rock really progressive. In other words, do something that was, was not done before. And, and I, I personally think he succeeded. Um, although it's a hectically technical album and very difficult and, and all over the place, it, it's got a listenability to it that just amazes me. And the production is immense. It's just amazing. Um, I, I, I think that uh, Jim Godfrey, Godfrey outdid himself here. It's one of the reasons why I got back into into progressive rock um, uh, in the 21st century. And I just think it's sonically an amazing production, amazing performances, and a great album all around. So Frost, Million Town. Yeah. I don't know, guys. So uh, I, the one thing I'm worried about is you guys are going to hit me with all these albums I've never heard I of. I won't. Uh, you, there might be a but couple, but no, this, you'll, you'll yeah. know some okay. of mine for sure. Um, what I what I think, I remember reading, uh, actually I asked him about this, gem, and there's a 26-minute epic that closes the album, and he basically says that 
He just wanted to see if he could write one. That was sort of it. I want to write one, but I want to do it in a way that's not the traditional thing. And, you know, a lot of 26-minute epics, I'm sure you're familiar, Stephen, is like they sort of repeat these themes over and then kind of at the end there's the big slow down grand finale type of thing. And what he does on that ending is completely flips it on its head and does not what you would expect. And it, okay. it gets kind of more aggressive and heavier and goes in a different direction. And it's like, it's the one time you hear one of those songs and you go, oh, I didn't see that coming. It didn't go where I was thinking right. it was going to go. So I always thought that was interesting. Yeah. All right. I'm going to go with my number five. Um, uh, you know, I actually tend to favor albums produced in the 70s when when it comes to a lot of this music. I just like that sound. I, I like the, the snare drums a lot and, and the organic instruments and stuff. But there's one album that I did pick from uh, the like the last uh, 10 years or I mean, it's two year, one year old, actually, um, that the production just blew me away in a way I hadn't heard uh, from an album like this, which is Devin Townsend's Empath. And I don't know if you're familiar with that one, uh, Stephen, but um, I'm sure I'm sure you know his music a little bit. But he's no. very very aggressive really? artist. Yeah. A lot of there and, could be a lot of death metal moments, and he's he, every album is very different. One album will be or, acoustic, one album will be orchestral. He's a very eclectic artist who takes risks, and on this album, he basically combined everything into one thing. In one song, there's 20 different genres. There there's a Disney. A song that could be on a Disney soundtrack on there. And the very next song is the most extreme death metal song you've ever heard. And those two things next to each other sound so insane. But he does it really well. And the production of it is the best production of that kind of heavy death metal kind of thing that I'm not normally a fan of, admittedly. But it just works so well and it's so loud and impressive. Um, it knocks me on my feet every time I hear it. and I think it's it's an immensely well mixed and produced record. Calm yourself down. I'm afraid it's another artist, another album I know nothing about. So you're introducing me to some stuff here, guys. Yeah. Great. Um, Sounds amazing. And, and actually, it's co-mixed and produced by um, Nolly Getgood from from Periphery, who does a lot of good production these days. He works with uh, Haken and, and some other these newer bands, and, and he's brilliant. Um, all right, let's go ahead and uh, and go back to you, Stephen. You're number four. Okay, so... Um, my full disclosure is that I'm an 80s boy, so a lot of the albums I love and grew up with are, are 80s albums. So um, there's a couple that really stand out for me from the 80s in terms of production and sonics. And one of them I was very fortunate to be able to remix recently into 5.1, which is Tears for Fears, The Seeds of Love. Um, one of my favorites. Which came out, amazing record, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you agree, good. So um, it came out right at the very end of the 80s. I think it came out October 1989. So right at the very cusp of moving into a new decade. And it was interesting because when it came out, it almost seemed like it was an album that was almost trying to refute the previous 10 years in the sense that the 80s had been a decade that was very much known for 
um, you know, artifice and technology and, you know, the introduction of sampling technology. And Tears for Fears, who'd been known as a synth pop duo, made this album suddenly where they were working with live instrumentation, great players, um, you know, like a John Gibbon on bass. And I forget the drummers. Is it Manu Kache on drums or yeah. Omar? Omar? Yeah, and Phil Collins oh, yeah. plays on, a, on his Phil, Phil Collins, Collins is on it. Yeah, yeah. Just great musicians and this great kind of gospel R&B singer called Alita Adams. Mm. And they came out with this record, which they took three years to make eight songs. <laughs> three years to make eight songs. And the thing is, very often those albums can come out something very, very overwrought and overthought. But this one was just perfection. You could almost hear why it took them three years to make. It, was almost, it had this kind of painterly aspect to it where everything was so perfect. The sound treatments, um, the instrumentation, the arrangements, the backing vocals. And sonically, it's just, I mean, as I say, I had the, the, the opportunity and the privilege to mix it um, in surround. And in surround, it's just, just like bathing in gorgeousness. It's just a stunningly immersive, beautiful pop record, but more than a pop record, a kind of ambitious, epic statement of intent. Yeah. Um, in a way, only a band that had come off the back of a multi-million selling album would have been indulged to make by their record company. Um, and I don't think they ever had the chance to do anything quite that ambitious again. But it's stunning. And for me, you know, you talk about what's truly progressive. That is a truly progressive piece of work for me. Yeah, it, it really is going from the previous album, which was just a hit factory. And then mm -hmm. to have the nerve to release, you know, a seven minute, you know, Seeds of Love as the single or, you know, it was, mm -hmm. was incredible. And the fact that that was a hit then, which is even more mind blowing. But uh, I'm a huge Tears for Fears fan. I love all their records. Elemental, uh, which came a little after, is one of my favorites. I love Roland's Amazing. production. Yeah. I love Great. that love stuff. It. Uh, and Nick, yeah, yeah, Nick is a huge yeah. fan of Raul and the Kings of Spain. That's like one of his all-time. We talk about that all, I love all the time. I love that album too. I love that album too. Time. For me, Roland is a genius, absolute yeah. genius. Yeah, he's amazing. I hope they. Uh, they're supposed to be working on a new record forever now. I hope it. I hope it actually comes out. They've been working on it for about ten years. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Nick, uh, you're up. Number four. All right, I'll, I'll, I was just going to say, good call, Stephen, because Tears for Fear is one of my all-time great favorites. And as as Roy said, Raúl and the Kings of Spain very, very nearly made it to my list here. But um, uh, I, I I went instead with uh, another uh, neo prog production, which um, in two thousand and nine came out, and uh, just to me is incredibly warm. It's very melodic. Prague, um, and I just love the warmth of this particular mix, and it's the Whirlwind by Transatlantic, um, mixed uh, by Rich Mauser and co-produced by by the band and, and Rich Mauser. I, I just love the way this album sounds. It's got an incredible warmth to it, and I had the opportunity of speaking to Rich about it once uh, at a gig that I attended, and um, 
he also said to me, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of his personal favorite mixes also. And he couldn't really put his finger on why or how he created uh, this, this different sounding warmth. And he didn't really know. He, he, the way he put it to me was, I just had a moment of musical zen with that album. And I don't know what I did differently, but I did something different. And it just sounds warmer than any other mix that I've done. So I, I, I kind of, um, you know, tossing up between Roll and this, I, I guess being the prog report, this one makes it because um, it, it is prog to its core. And I know Stephen is a fan of um, the album. And this is very much an album. It's one. It's one long piece of music. It's got a central concept, and um, I guess, uh, in respect of what you would call progressive rock from the, from the seventies, it's faithful to that. The Planets Align. It's a great sounding album. So number four would be the Whirlwind. Yeah, I mean that definitely falls into the sort of influence from classic prog kind of thing. Transatlantic is you know Neil Morse, Mike Portnoy, Roy Nestolt, and and Pete Marillion, and and so yeah, I mean for that. Uh, world of Prague, it's it's definitely considered up there in one one of the one of the better albums, and it's 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 great. talk about it as being one okay. one seventy two minute song so uh yeah. you know which yeah. i always i always find that hard to 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 for me it's 12 songs because it's it has 12 numbers and skips so you know i don't know how you determine which way or the other but um all right i'm going way back for my number four uh which um i'm a big uh well i'm a i'm a big fan of this artist from this era uh which is elton john uh and goodbye yellow brick road and uh, those 70s records, oh, yeah. yeah, those oh, 70s wow. records that he did, I think, are just in insanely incredible. Uh, you know, 80s stuff and, and sort of later on, I've, I've lost interest and I, I just don't think it's the same stuff. But fair <laughs> enough. I mean, he has a, a, an enormous amount of hits. And um, mm -hmm. but, you know, produced by Gus Dodgen, who did a bunch of his records and engineered by uh, David Henschel, who produced the 70s, uh, later 70s era Genesis stuff. Um Look, I don't. I mean, it's it's an incredible album, songwriting, everything. The production is just brilliant. That that sound of how those instruments are recorded from from that era, I I just love that. I love the warmth of it, and particularly on all the Elton John records, the snare drum and the bass drum were very upfront, and I always thought that's mm. a really cool sound, uh, in how those albums were recorded. But it's it's one of my all time favorite records. It's just a masterpiece. Does yeah yeah um um I, I almost put an Elton John album in my own top five and the only reason I didn't is because it's it's kind of hard to pick one for me 
Um, because I, I very often say to people, if you want to look at a brilliant run of, of work, you know, Elton John in the 70s is almost flawless. And the, and the rate of work is incredible. I mean, there's something like 10 albums, two of them double between 1970 and 1976, <laughs> all of which for me are borderline masterpieces, if not full-blown masterpieces. I thought about maybe putting Blue Moves in because that's probably my favorite Elton album. Mm. But maybe, maybe you're right. Go, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is the one that has so many of the famous songs and the production is just flawless. The songwriting is flawless. The lyrics are flawless. Even the artwork is iconic. The fact that it's a double, although Blue Moves is also a double. Um, yeah, good call. Uh, I'm, I'm definitely with you there. Uh, all right, let's... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, so you're yeah. up. You're number three. So I'll, I'll pick a 90s album now. Um, I'm going to pick an album that comes ostensibly from the world of hip-hop, except it's not a hip-hop record at all. It's um, Massive Attack's Medicine, um, which was, for me, when I heard it, sonically a revelation because of conceptual, um, epic weights of, of most, many of the albums that I grew up loving. But it's an album that comes from a background of urban music and hip-hop music and trip-hop music. Sonically, it's just stunning. The, one of the, my favorite tracks of all time is Teardrop, the song with, with Liz Fraser on, on vocals from the Cocteau Twins. And Cocteau Twins are also one of my favorite bands growing up. And what I love about it is it's very dark and very claustrophobic sounding, but not in a kind of lo-fi way. It sounds very high fidelity, very sonically rich, very textural. It has a lot of sound design elements to it. One thing I love about records, and this obviously goes right back to talking about Dark Side of the Moon again, is I love records that have sound, strong sound design aesthetics to them. So that when you're listening to a piece of music, you're not just listening to the drummer, the bass player, the keyboard player, and the guitar player. You're also listening to these little details that come out of the mix. Obviously, Dark Side of the Moon being a poster child for that kind of approach, with all the sound effects, the voices in the back of the mix, the, the sound effects of the cash registers and all that stuff. This is all sound design. Those kind of albums are fantastic when you start to mix in surround. They're the kind of mixes I, they're the kind of albums I pray to mix in surround mm. because they're a gift to be able to put those kind of sounds in the surround field. And Mezzanine is full of those little moments. And it's interesting, I spoke once, there was a guy called Paul Northfield involved in, in recording one of the Porcupine Tree records. And I, we were both massive fans of Mezzanine. It was a strong reference point when we were doing that record. And I said to Paul, what is it that makes this record sound so good? And he said, he just said one word, distortion. Everything is some kind of harmonic distortion. And it's a very hard thing to pull off that kind of thing and not make a record just sound like a mess. Um, but distortion very often is what makes things sound exciting. You know, guitar, where would, we, where would we be without distortion? Black Sabbath, the sound of the bass guitar without a little bit of distortion. Right. Distortion sometimes is what makes records pop, what we call pop. They kind of leap out of the mix. They sound exciting. And Massive Attack are masters of using distortion on drums, on bass, on keyboards, on vocals. There's a little bit of, so it's a, it's a kind of hidden ingredients of that album.
No, that's great. I'm not familiar with that one, but but cool. That's awesome. Okay. All right. For my number three, I'm going to go to the 80s, which Stephen has mentioned, and I'm going to go with the band It Bites and their last studio album in 1989, which is called Eat Me in St. Louis. Now, um, uh, it's, it, for, for what it's worth, they're a bit of everything, It Bites. I mean, Francis Dunnery is a well-known, uh, a well-known personality in Prague and, and, and in pop. John Mitchell, of course, replaced um, uh, Francis in It Bites. But this particular album stuck with me, and I decided to put it in here because you got to understand, as a young sort of drummer in, in the 80s, hearing what to me was the most massive drum mix I've ever heard, and to this day stands up as one of the biggest drum mixes uh, uh, ever, and overall one of the fattest sounds of, of any album. Um, it, it had to make the list for me. It, it was produced by Reinhold Mack, who's known for his work with Queen, ELO, Sparks. Uh, I think he did a Black Sabbath album, Extreme, Rory Gallagher. Um, so Reinhold Mack, uh, a legendary producer, um, he, he recorded and, and, and produced this album in Giorgio Moroder's studio in Munich. It's the band at their least proggy, more hard rock. But what a sound, what an amazing sound. I just couldn't believe it when I first heard it. And to this day, I mean, I put it on again last night in preparation for this and thought, okay, let me not second guess myself, but does it still sound so fat? Yes, it does. It holds up today. I mean, sounds like underneath your pillow, still too young to remember. Ice melts into water. Just sound amazing. Um, and uh, interestingly, during the recording of this album, Francis actually invented a new instrument called the tap board. It was a kind of a tap style guitar instrument that, that he developed just specifically for this album. Amazing album, great sound, great composition, great performance, wonderful album to hear. And so it makes my money. Awesome. Yeah, I got it. That's a great, great band. Um, I'm going to go with my number three uh, just to keep things moving. But I can't discuss production without mentioning probably my favorite producer. Um, of course, uh, Stephen, you, you not included, um, is uh, Jeff Lynn and ELO and uh, Out of the Blue. Yeah. Which is uh, yes. probably yeah. my top five all time favorite records. Good call. And um I love his sound. I, you know, and this, the sound that he's most known for, I think, came slightly later. Although you can hear it kind of on this record, but there's been albums that I've heard over the last twenty years. Brian Adams comes to mind, where he did an album with Brian Adams, where I heard, happened to hear a song, and I went, "Oh, that's Jeff Lynn did this," and sure enough, it's a whole album that he did with Jeff Lynn. Like it's so specific, and I don't think you hear that from most producers really there's some that you can hear that you know something is produced it's not as unique as a guitar sound or mm -hmm. you know or a drummer or a singer's voice um but he has that he has that and he and he's just a genius one of my all-time heroes and i've been so happy that they've been touring again and you know i've i've seen them three times in the last three years 
Um, mm. But out of the blue is just a masterpiece. I mean, just the way the orchestration is recorded and and um, uh, what can you say about it? It's just amazing. Well, I would like to say something about it. I'm glad you picked it because I should have picked that record and I, and I almost did, but except I didn't think of it, but you did, thankfully. Um, it's a masterpiece. And I think what I want to say about just, I know we need to move on, but just one thing I want to say about what I love about Jeff Lynne and ELO is they kind of have that Beatles or XTC thing where every song seems to have a new musical palette created just for it. And if you think about on, you know, that album, Out of the Blue, you think of a song like Jungle, or you think of a song like Mr. Blue Sky, uh, or you think of a song like The Whale or Birmingham Blues. Every song has kind of created its own little musical palette to exist in. And that's something that I think Jeff was very influenced. Obviously he was a big fan of the Beatles when he was, when he was younger. And that was something the Beatles did all the time. It's like every song is like a new problem to solve. What musical world are we gonna create for Penny Lane, for Strawberry Fields Forever, for A Day in the Life, you know? when I'm 64, all completely different, but all instantly recognizable. I think this is what you said, instantly recognizable as having the signature of the same captain of the ship. And that to me is what made, what I love ELO forever for that and Jeff Lynne forever for that. Great Agreed. choice, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm gonna go for um, my fourth, fourth choice, another 80s album, which is Talk Talk. Now, Talk Talk, one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, I love all of their records. All of them are completely different, of course. I mean, the Virtually no connection between an album like The Party's Over and an album like Spirit of Eden or Laughing Star. But I'm actually going to pick the one that is kind of in the middle. It's what you might call the transitional record. They still have a strong pop sensibility, but they are moving towards that kind of luminous, transcendent spiritual sound that they're going to arrive at on Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock. And it is Color of Spring. Um, Color of Spring for me, one of the most beautiful. And what I love about it is it came out in the mid 80s, but it has none of the affectations of 80s production. The drum sound is very dry and very organic. They're using things like Hammond organs, mellotrons, but it doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound nostalgic. It just sounds like it's using a very timeless musical palette. The songs are stunning. Life's what you make it. Living in another world, give it up. Um, and Hollis is just one of my favorite writers and favorite songwriters of all time. And it sounds like Dark Side of the Moon, it just kind of emits this kind of warm, radiant glow to it. So there's my number four, Color of Spring Talk Talk. They have a kind of a, a appreciation in the prog world, actually. You, you hear you hear them mentioned a lot as as a band that like like a Tears for Fears and like that kind of stuff, where it's sort of sure. you know uh, there's a following there. Um, Nick, you're number two. Okay, so at the risk of sounding predictable, um, I'm going to go with 90125 by Yes. Um, 
produced by the great Trevor Horn. Um, you know, it, it, on another on another day, it could be another album. But um, you know, the connection the the connection for me with with uh, Tre- Trevor Rabin being being a bro- born and bred South African made the album very special. But more special than that was the fact that it was the resurgence of Yes, certainly with a new sound, but um, also not not departing too far away from from the signature components of, of yes's traditional sound um so I, I i think that everybody that was involved in that album did a great job in harnessing this new energy and this new pop sense sensibility while at the same time not abandoning what 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 yes fans traditionally would would expect it was remixed i think in 2004 by by rhino uh two producers dan hirsch and bill inglot uh, who who remixed it and uh, that remix does provide great greater clarity to it and and more sonic power um, uh, and 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 there's there's no doubt that it deserved to be remixed but that takes nothing away from the 1983 mix that Trevor Horn did um, uh, people people bought the remix for the bonus material I think as much as the fact that they had to have uh, any remix version of it but uh, the original version remains a classic. Uh, fantastic production, fantastic composition, great performances, and so I had to put it in there. Yeah, at the a, risk it's of sounding a great sounding record even now, and it's a great example of a reinvention of a band that, you know, that works. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big Trevor Horn fan. He was one of my big guys. I mean, I grew up really wanting to be a producer, more musician. So Trevor Horn, all the stuff he did in the 80s, including that album, but also the Frankie stuff, Grace Jones, Slave to the Rhythm. These were all, you know, touchstones for me, certainly growing up. Yeah. So, yeah, great choice. Owner of Lonely Heart, one of the greatest pop singles of all time for me, yeah. Yeah, awesome. I'm going to go a little bit uh, 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 maybe narcissistic, I guess it would be what you would say, but I'm, I'm going to say uh, I had to pick this because it's uh, actually honestly how I feel about it. And I, it, it may look like a bit of a kiss ass, but um, I'm going to go Porcupine Tree and Absentia um, for for my Good number call. two. And uh, I mean, I've gone on and on on many podcasts and things on the website that it's one of my all-time favorite records and uh it's the album that got me into your music and into the into the band uh and uh i just think it's brilliant it was it was that it came around at a time where um outside of a few bands uh rock that i loved that i obsessed about the the things that i really liked it from the 80s and early 90s there was nothing like that and and I was listening to complete just completely outside of other stuff that I the norm that I like, and discovering this album was like a breath of fresh air for me. Uh, so, uh, sound of music again, just that that sound, the drums in there, Gavin's drum fills are just iconic for me uh, from that track. The mix of the clean and the heavy and blackest eye. Um, all the stuff that you did on that record, I, th- I just think it's, it's a for me, it's a it's a modern day masterpiece in in songwriting and in production. Oh, 
thank you very much. I'm very flattered. Um, I mean, that interesting, that album was the only one we ever made, really, where we had a um, the support of a major record company in the sense of we were able to go wherever we wanted, work with whatever engineers and, and mixing guys. And I think that kind of is telling on that record. We recorded at, at Avatar in New York with Paul Northfield Engineering. It was mixed in LA at, at Larrabee by Tim Palmer, who'd obviously also... As you guys know, probably, probably know mixed elemental, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons I wanted to work with him because I love that record so much, um, and did a great job mixing. And we never really had that luxury. And unfortunately, the record was not successful. So, um, so I'm yes, I'm really happy you picked that. I, I think probably sonically, it is it is the best sounding uh, of the Porcupine Tree records because of the people that were involved with it um, made it so. And and I th also, I think I had a lot more time to write songs for it, so yeah. we had a wonderful pool of material to draw from. Um, because while we were looking for the record deal, we had like three years and I was writing, writing, writing all the time. But thank you for picking it now. I'm, I'm very, very honored yeah, and flattered. Yeah. Well, leads beautifully on okay. to me picking, to being narcissistic, because I am, the thing is, I'm so proud of the Future Bites. And part of the reason I'm proud of it is because of the way it sounds. And sonically for me, this is a real breakthrough. And I'm really proud of the incorporation of electronic elements into it. Um, and a more contemporary edge to the sound. So I, I'm, I'm not gonna talk a lot about it, except to say that for me, the Future Bites is, even if you don't like the music, um, I think it's a real sonic, uh, sonic beauty. Uh, it sounds beautiful. And I hope you guys will get to hear the Atmos mix and the, yeah. uh, and the surround mix. And yeah, no, I immerse agree. yourself in the, in the sound design. Will you help me gather my thoughts? Will you help me find the transitions I forgot? Or can you be me for a moment? Yeah, live inside me and see the world the way it always looks to me. You know, one of the things, just real quick, because I know I know we got to wrap it so up. But, uh, yeah. The the thing is that people, I think they've learned by now that whatever you're going to put out as a first single or make a video for almost has, it's not a complete rep representation ever of what's on the album. And, uh, you know, perfect example was Perfect Life being the first single off, you know, Hand Cannot Erase, for example, or, or something. So um, there's a lot to uh, absorb in the record. It's very, it's very diverse. There's a lot of great stuff on there. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, it's, it, it just continues on, on the path of what people know you for. And I think it's, it's, there's a lot of good stuff, man. I, I think it's great again. So definitely for, for people to check out. Part of me hates this idea that you have to release part of an album before the release, because this album, like everything in my musical adventure as a musical journey, the idea that you take out little pieces, it's almost like advertising a movie by just taking one scene out of the middle and saying, right. there you go, that's the movie. How, you know, how can you get the story from that? I hate doing that, but it's unfortunately that's the world we live in. You have to do it. Right. That's and, the thing. When I you just, listen to the album from beginning to end, it really just, it, it's a whole different, it's a whole different approach yeah. and, and, and way to absorb it. Um, all right, Nick, you're number one and then I'll, I'll wrap it up. All right. I, I absolutely do not want to sound sycophantic and I'm going to preface this by saying this is genuine and this is, this is my honest opinion with complete integrity as a prog yeah. report reporter. Okay, I'm putting my integrity on the line here, and I'm saying this um, because I'm not 
about saying what I'm about to say because Stephen is sitting with us. I'm saying it because I genuinely, honestly mean it. For me, possibly the greatest production of uh, the last 40 years is Stephen's fourth solo album, 2015's Hand Cannot Erase. And uh, I, I, just, I just have to wax a little lyrical about this production. Well, make sure because, you leave me a few minutes. Course, Please do. <laughs> produced um, by the one and only Stephen Wilson, and not because he's with us today. It truly is my favorite sounding album of recent times. Um, the deluxe edition in particular, with all those immersive visuals, uh, make it extra special. The mixture of pop, prog, electronic, ambient, metal. I think it's almost like a historical synopsis of, of Stephen's musical history, but presented in the strongest possible fashion. It coalesces everything. It's perplexing, but it's immensely satisfying. It's immediate, but it's deep at the same time. In my opinion, really, Stephen, I, I mean this, it's a masterpiece. Um, well, songs like Perfect so Life, Home Invasion, Routine, th these are just as astounding songs in and of themselves. Yeah. But when the album is listened to and experienced as a whole, as I think you pointed out uh, is your desire earlier on, then then the central concept makes makes sense. The story of, of, of Joyce Vincent coalesces. Um, and yes, the compositions are, are, are brilliant. Yes, the performances with people like Marco Miniman uh, and and um, uh, you know Nick Beggs and and some of the greatest Guthrie performers Govan. in the world coalesce it. But but finally, it's the production that puts that final layer on the cake. I, I can't put it in any other words other than to say you don't just hear this album; you feel it, you experience it. It's extra special because of Stephen's production. When you add the visuals, Lasse Holly's uh, uh, visuals and, and, and the whole immersive experience of, of the images that are provided with the deluxe edition, together with that 96-page book, uh, sketchbook paper cuttings of a fictional character, and so on. This makes it truly the production of the last couple of decades for me when listened to and experienced, and I use the word experienced rather than just listen to uh, as a whole uh it's genius it's brilliant it is one of the greatest productions that wow well, there you go in. man you can't get much better than that wow yeah. <laughs> thank you very much i'm glad i came I mean, I think I think one thing you that, I, that you seem to be saying here, which I agree with, is that that conceptually was a real gift for me. That story of Joyce Carol Vincent was a gift, and it's not the sort of thing that comes along often. It's funny; a lot of people think I always make albums that have, you know concept albums, and in a way I do. But that's the only album I've ever made that actually had a narrative from beginning to end. Most of the others are more like themed rather than you know narrative. And that story was such a gift. And it's amazing finding a story like that. It did become very inspirational, um, not just for the, the kind of songs, but for the whole scale of the project, which seems to be kind of what you're, you're saying. Um, I'm not sure if I'll ever have a concept like that ever again, which will, which will lead me to create something on that scale ever again, because things like that don't come along very often. 
but anyway, that, that, that's lovely yeah. to, uh, so thank you so much, Nick. I'm, I'm very, very- um, I can't say a lot more than I agree. I love it. Uh, I can't add too much more. And I know we got, a, I, I want to get my last in here before you got to run, Stephen. Again, thank yeah, yeah. you so much for, for giving us an hour here uh, to do this. This was great. Um, so I just want to say that if, for me, I think going into this, if Dark Side of the Moon was the obvious number one that had to be on this list, I kind of feel like this would be the obvious number two. And that's what I went with, which is Queen's A Night at the Opera. And, um, you know, at the time, the most expensive album ever made, Bohemian Rhapsody, the most extravagant recording at that time ever made, um, really stretching the boundaries of what you could do in a studio. Every song completely different with com mm -hmm. completely different instrumentation, recording elements. There's books uh, that you can read about all the different things that they tried and, and, and you know, and tested. Roy Thomas Baker, you know, producing it. Um, yeah, just, you know, an all time classic and my favorite cream record and just one of my favorite records of all time. Great choice. Great choice. I think the, the, the genius of Queen is also not just the production, but the arrangement. The vocal arrangements are just just sublime, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Great choices, Chris. Well, um, thank you so much, because I've really enjoyed it. Nick, I only knew two of your choices, <laughs> so I'm going to have to check out the others. But at least I know all the others, yeah. So um, fantastic, and uh, thank and you Stephen, so much. Stephen, again, always a, always a treat to talk to you, man. I hope to get to see you on the road again, and good luck with the record and, uh, and everything you're doing. Appreciate it. Good luck, Stephen. Fantastic, guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Right, bye.